1970, Archbishop Lefebvre, a French Archbishop, was upset at the changes in the liturgy that were happening around the time of the Second Vatican Council. And so, he decided to reject papal authority and he founded a schismatic group known as the Society of St. Pius X. Later in 1992, Sinead O'Connor, very famously, on an episode of Saturday Night Live, held up a picture of Pope John Paul II and tore it into pieces as an act of bold defiance of the Pope, calling him the enemy of our good. Nowadays, many Catholics who are upset with Pope Francis's leadership will discuss anew the possibility of separation and whether that would be legitimate and whether that would be morally acceptable, all of which raises the question anew. Why do Catholics even have a Pope? Where did it come from? Why should I submit to it? Now the short answer is, well, because Christ instituted it for our good, so we can't just easily dispense with those sorts of things. But I could say more, right? Contrary to popular opinion, it's actually an office that is very clearly instituted in the scriptures. And that's today what I wanna dive into a little bit more. So let me explain. If you track all the way back to around 1000 BC, Israel as a kingdom was at its peak with its glory. This was during the reign of King David, who then has a son, Solomon. Solomon, and you can see this in 1 Kings chapter 4, does something different. He picks 12 officers that he calls to himself and makes them leaders. At the same time, he chooses Ahishar as quote, master of the palace. So this is an office he's creating, which therefore makes this man the most powerful individual in the kingdom, second only to the king, because he's endowed with all of the king's authority to act in his name. Now this role as master of the house by the Israelites was clearly understood to continue in perpetuity, which is why when we get to today's first reading from Isaiah, which is 300 years later after Solomon has died, Isaiah is able to prophesy against Shebna, who is described as, quote, master of the palace. And what Isaiah does is he explains that Shebna has misbehaved, so Eliakim is gonna replace him. And in the language of replacing is all this transference of authority, all these images of authority. So it says, I will clothe him with your robe, gird him with your sash, give over to him your authority. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulders. When he opens, no one shall shut. When he shuts, no one shall open. They will hang on him the whole weight of his father's house the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all of the flagons. So when it comes to this man's authority as master of the palace, nothing is outside of his grasp, right? From, the, from every offspring and issue, the cups to all of the flagons. This matters because in scripture, there's always the immediate sense. So Eliakim's a real person, this is really happening. But there's also the eternal sense that is intended for the kingdom that only becomes fulfilled in Christ. So as you hear all of that language, think beyond Eliakim, what does this mean for what is to come? 
And that becomes clear in the use of that language of key. It's the only time the key to the house of David is used in the entire Old Testament, which means this is the only passage that we can reasonably use as the context to understand what Jesus does in the gospel. What does he do? He imitates Solomon. He calls 12 officers to himself that he makes apostles. And then in today's gospel, in Matthew 16, he looks at Peter and he gives him the keys to the kingdom. And he says to him, kind of like the shut and the open language from Eliakim, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, keep in mind that this is recorded in Matthew's gospel. Matthew is writing to a Christian community that are Jewish converts. So when they're seeing this event happen in Jesus's life and ministry of the handing over of the keys and the power of binding and loosing, they're hearing this in light of the of Isaiah when the keys were mentioned in the Old Testament, such that they clearly see that Christ is imparting the full weight of his own authority to Peter and charges him to have care for the needs of the church, which will come up again later in John's gospel when he says to him after the resurrection, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, right? We're seeing this stewardship language come into play. The offspring and the issue, every small vessel, the cups to all the flagons. This is again reinforced in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, when Jesus gives this whole parable about a faithful servant whom the master gives charge over the entirety of his house to feed them at the proper time, right? Same language. And Peter, with very clear irony here, intended for the early Christian community, is the one who says to Jesus, Jesus, did you mean that parable for everybody? And Jesus looks Peter dead eye and says to him, who then, Peter, is the faithful and wise steward whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? And again, the obvious answer is you, Peter, you are the master I'm setting over the house to give them their food at the proper time, which is why he then says later in John's gospel, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. When we see this happening in light of all these other biblical insights, like how when the apostles are listed in the gospels, Judas is always last for obvious reasons. Peter is always first for obvious reasons. How all the apostles get the power of binding and loosing but Peter gets it separately and he gets it earlier. Jesus tells all the apostles that Satan demanded to sift them, but that he prayed for Peter specifically to be protected and to strengthen his brothers. Peter's name is mentioned 191 times in the New Testament, which blows all the other apostles out of the water. The closest being John, who comes in at a mere 60. When controversies arise in the book of Acts and the church hits an impasse in their debates, they all turn to Peter and he settles the score and the issue is over. Peter's unique role among the twelve, modeled after Solomon's master of the palace, is difficult to deny. But like Solomon, this is the other part of the argument, 
this office was meant to continue in perpetuity, which church history makes crystal clear. After Peter, it was Linus, then Cletus, then Clement, and so on, all the way to Francis. And we have their writings in the early church. And what we see in them is an abundant amount of historical evidence that Christians, by and large, yielded obedience to this office and the man in it. So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean we have to like every pope, nor does it mean every pope is a saint. In fact, some have done terrible things. But it does mean that the papacy is Christ's gift to you. It's a gift meant to manage the temporal and spiritual needs of the church. A gift wherein he would serve as our supreme pastor, manifesting for us the loving concern of Christ for the world in real time. A gift meant to strengthen our faith in the spiritual warfare we call life. And a gift that unites an international church under one voice, one gospel, so that Annunciation is preaching the same gospel as is being preached in Mozambique such that in 2,000 years, with all the risk of human weakness, the church has never changed her teachings in faith and morals, which is nothing short of a miracle, but is due in part to the gift of this office. So what does that mean for us now? Well, it means that God loves you that much, that he would give this to you. But it also means we need to love God enough to respect that office, regardless of what we think of the man in it and to pray for our spiritual father as we do our own biological father, both of which are imperfect, that he might be faithful to the dignity of the office he bears.